0: The season of Lent comes not to kill your desires, but to fan them into flame. Lent comes not to diminish your loves, but to inspire them to something greater. What do you love? Whom do you love? Do you love them today? Will you love them tomorrow? Most of us use the word love a great deal. We love this movie or that song, this product or that snack. We love and love a great deal. But our loves shift and change, don't they? Our minds and our hearts, they wander, they're pulled off course. It's one thing today, one person perhaps for a spell and a season, but there are more options to come. We love lightly and perhaps if we are honest, We love weakly. The band Iron and Wine sing in their song Lion's Mane. Love is a crying baby. Mama warned you not to shake. A fitful and fragile thing. Our love is precarious. Brian Ferry in the 80s, more my decade, sang, is your love strong enough? The start of the Lenten season. How is your love? In the Christian tradition, the weakness of human love is often described in terms of disorder. It's not simply that our love is weak, it's that it's often misaligned or misdirected. We love the right things, the true, the good, the beautiful, too little. And we love lesser things, passing things, too much. Over these last few years, I've engaged with a physical therapist for a few seasons, and I've come to experience this reality in a fresh way. I go because I would love to be more healthy, more recovered from an injury, less prone to the ravages of time. But when I go for my appointment and I'm asked, how are you doing? How's it going? I find that I'd prefer to describe the pain. I'd more prefer to describe the pain than do anything about it. The truth of the matter is that most of what the therapist asks me to do hurts. It's uncomfortable. It takes effort. Is my love, my desire, strong enough? In our gospel reading this evening, there is the language of disordered and misaligned love. In Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of hypocrites, hypocrites who live for the show. Now, that word has a very negative connotation for us, as it did in Jesus' day. And it's a particular focus in the Gospel of Matthew. Seventeen times the word hypocrite appears in the New Testament. Thirteen times, thirteen of those times, is in Matthew. And in Matthew, we see that being a hypocrite, an actor, is antithetical to life in the kingdom that Jesus brings. You don't want to be a hypocrite. But one aspect of the term might be lost on us, and that is this dimension of self-deception. Some of the times, and our Matthew 6 reading today is one of them, Jesus uses this term to describe not so much the conscious attempt to deceive others, to be two-faced, and more describes it, uses it in terms of a false perspective, misaligned values. So hypocrites, according to one biblical scholar, are those who cannot see, have no aspirations beyond the applause of their peers. They love it too much, maybe even without realizing it. You see this misaligned love in verse 5 where Jesus describes hypocrites as ones who love to stand and pray publicly that they might be seen by others. Whether they know it or not, their intention, their motivation is rooted in the love they have for honor and acclaim in the eyes of their neighbors. They love being seen. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5:16, Jesus speaks of the public witness his followers might have, calls them to be a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. So the issue is not one of being seen or not, but it's a question of value, intention, motivation, a question of inordinate love. Disordered desire, loving the recognition too greatly. Do you know what you love? Are your stated allegiance and motivations your strongest loves? Those that truly guide your heart and your actions? It's a disconcerting question. Do you love what you say you love? At the root of our disordered, weak loves is the love of the self. A life centered on the self is the fount of misdirected desire. There was a study a few years ago published in American Psychology describing American culture as one afflicted with collective narcissism. In his book, Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us, Journalist Will Storr suggests our self-obsession is deeply rooted in our society, culture, and history. But he argues that this self-obsession has been exponentially empowered by technologies that center us and our entertainment, our interests, make them the focus of our worlds. My iPhone, which by any measure I adore, is a remarkable tool that places me at the center of my world regularly. This centering of the self is part of what characterizes the hypocrite. In verse 2 of our reading, Jesus describes hypocrites as those motivated by gaining the praise of others. That word praise is the same word used elsewhere about giving glory to God. For the actor, the hypocrite, God... The Almighty Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth, has been displaced, moved from the center and the self. And what the self most values has replaced him. In Scripture, this decentering, this centering of the self, is always connected to injustice and the oppression of others. You see this clearly in the Old Testament passage, Isaiah 58, where the prophet declares In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And oppress all your workers. Those actions are linked. Our inordinate love of ourselves, of honor for ourselves, our love of security and comfort and luxury, such that we would deprive our neighbors, such that we would hurt others, such that we would press for every advantage, is the life of self centeredness, the life of the hypocrite, the life of disordered and weak loves. In a sermon on our gospel reading, The church father, John Chrysostom, makes the point that it is not the love of bad or evil things that Jesus addresses here. Honor, security, comfort, the acclaim of others are fine, even good things. It is simply that they are loved too much. He writes, a fine thing, a good thing, becomes defiled if it's mixed with a baser substance, even though that other substance be not vile in its own nature. Gold, for example, is debased by pure silver if mixed with it. So also, our minds and hearts are defiled by a desire for the things of the earth, although the thing itself is pure in its own class and order. I remember a few years ago watching that reality television show, The Amazing Race, you know, where teams have to go on this incredible journey somewhere on the globe. And in this particular episode, The teams were driving had been given SUVs and they had to go far enough in this journey that they needed to refuel at one point. They were traveling in a country, I can't remember which one, where English wasn't the language. And a number of the teams failed to recognize that the SUVs they were driving had diesel powered engines. So they filled up with regular unleaded gasoline, right? And sure enough, Those vehicles did not make it to their destination. But there's nothing wrong with gasoline, right? Gasoline is not evil. It's not bad. But it's simply not what the engine required. It's not what the vehicle needed to run, to thrive, to flourish. In the same way, for the human person to flourish, we must be reoriented, weaned, from the love of ourselves, from an inordinate love for the things of the earth, security, comfort, honor, and pleasure. It is not that such things are bad. It's that they were never intended to occupy the center of our lives, never meant to be our first loves. Into that reality, into this need for reorientation, comes the gift of the season of Lent. And the gifts of this season directly address the problem of our disordered and weak loves. Today, Ash Wednesday, is the reminder that we are finite and mortal. A reminder that you and I will die and the story continue without us. A cross of ashes on our foreheads and the words, to dust you shall return, is a strong antidote to seeing ourselves as most important to seeing our needs and desires as most lovely. They're a reminder that Jesus' words in verse 19 about the earthly destiny of all treasures that rival true love apply to ourselves as well. We all come to dust, to ash. Someday, all that I am and all that I hold dear tremble at the thought will decay. I am not the center, I am not the center, I am not the center. Those things that we most value today do not remain and cannot satisfy. Beyond the reminder of Ash Wednesday alone, however, the gift of this season is also the opportunity it provides to intentionally engage in those practices, those disciplines and habits that might reshape and reform our loves. The antidote to the hypocrisy that Jesus identifies is not the quashing, the killing of desire. In verse 19 and 20, his solution is not that the human person would stop pursuing treasure, would stop loving or desiring, but that their loves would be redirected, reoriented to things of a higher order, to a more worthy goal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. The gift of the season of Lent is the opportunity to intentionally engage in practices that reorient us toward pursuit of such treasure. Practices like those Jesus' names in Matthew 6, assuming that they will mark out the lives of his followers. The discipline of fasting, the deliberate disengagement from food, from other physical goods, for a higher reason or purpose, a way of reminding ourselves that we are more than our stomachs that there's something to love beyond physical comfort and pleasure, that our lives are centered on something more than sustenance and the satisfying of our appetites. You and I are made for something more, greater, more worthy of our love. Jesus himself, who declared, I have food you know nothing of, fasted himself for 40 days at the beginning of his public ministry, preparation for a life and work animated by a love of things truer, more beautiful and better than physical goods, for something hidden, secret, but so much greater. Jesus also names the practice of the giving of alms, giving to those in need. Similar to fasting, this is a practice, a habit related to the reorientation of our hearts away from the love of money or wealth when we give out of our abundance, We are declaring to God that we entrust ourselves to his generosity, his provision. We are doing what our money says. In God, we trust. And as we give, we are declaring to ourselves, to our wealth, you are not the most important thing in my life. My treasure is something more than you are. My heart is set on something greater and more permanent. That is my true love. How might the Lord be inviting us into practices of generosity, practices that would break the hold of materialism, consumerism in our lives for our own benefit this very Lenten season? The third practice, the most prominent in Matthew chapter 6, is prayer. In verses missing from our reading this evening is the introduction to the Lord's prayer in Matthew's gospel. And prayer is at the center of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It stands at the center of the life he calls us to. I think that prayer is at the center because there is no other practice quite like prayer in reorienting our loves, in helping to remind us what is most lovely and setting our hearts there. In the structure of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus gives his followers, we are reoriented, first and foremost, to the hallowing of God's name, the doing of his will, the coming of his kingdom. We begin with what is most important, most lovable. And then we address our petitions, our concerns, our needs, in the context of these heavenly things, things of a higher order. In the same way, our practice of prayer, following the form of the prayer Jesus has given us, is an occasion to remind us of what's most lovely and lovable and to reorient our own real concerns, our needs, in light of the kingdom that Jesus brings. The practice of prayer shapes our loves, orients them toward God, who is in secret, hidden now, but more real and permanent, more lovely than all we might otherwise pursue or love here on earth. A few years ago, I read a story about Daniel Berrigan, Daniel Berrigan was a Jesuit priest who was a key leader in the plowshares movement in the 1980s. As an expression of their love of Jesus, their orientation toward his kingdom, those involved with the plowshares took steps to protest against the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the United States. They broke into nuclear facilities and vandalized missiles in the name of Jesus, deliberately provoking their arrest and incarceration. In the story I was reading, Father Berrigan was anticipating another excursion to a facility, anticipating his arrest and imprisonment. And in preparation for that day for prison, he was deliberately engaging in specific spiritual practices, practices of prayer and fasting in particular, anticipating the challenge, the pressure and stress of what he would endure. And Father Berrigan spoke of these practices as necessary, necessarily shaping of his heart, such that he could faithfully endure prison in a Christ-like way, engaging in habits and disciplines that would remind him of his deepest love so that he could obey, even when deprived of things that he loved, his freedom, the relationships he had with friends and loved ones. The politics of what Father Berrigan was involved in aside, it seems to me that this example of preparation might be one for us this Lent. His story is perhaps a reminder that our obedience to God, our participation with his kingdom involves the shaping of our loves, the shaping work of disciplines and practices of prayer and fasting, of giving of ourselves and what we have. This season may be one of preparing, shaping your loves for obedience to God you don't yet know. There is obedience that God has for us that we might now prepare for, by the reshaping of our own hearts. Of course, the reshaping of desire is not simply about moving from those things that we love that are too weak and too small. It's also about being captivated by something greater and stronger. These next days and weeks are ones of journeying with Jesus to Holy Week, of following him to the cross, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, declares that Jesus, readying himself to be taken up, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Anticipating the cross, knowing all that He was to endure, the suffering, the deprivation, the loss, Jesus set his face like a flint, suffered and died, and in the words of Dorothy Sayers, thought it all worthwhile. for love. For love of the Father for the love of creation, for the love of his people. Think of the strength, the strength of that love to endure all that Jesus did. One of the implications of Matthew 6 is that our practices cannot save us. Even doing the right things, engaging in the right practices, our love remains weak, prone to wander, The greatest, most disciplined Lenten season will not change the reality that my love is fragile and disordered. My heart is set so easily on earthly things, set to putting myself at the center. How very good then that the gift of this season, the gifts of Lent, the gift of Ash Wednesday, the reminder that we will die, the opportunity to engage in reshaping habits comes to us then in the context of God's deep abiding and strong love, the strong love that Jesus shows us with the children's Bible the Jesus storybook describes as never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is the love that Jesus shows us in his journey to, the de- to death upon the cross. That is the love that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts such that we can now be set upon what is most lovely, most true, good, and beautiful, such that we can now participate in the reforming, reshaping of our loves and desires, not as a means of securing salvation, but responding to the great gifts, the true and strong love we have received. This Lent, our loves are weak, but thanks be to God, his love is strong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.